0: You're listening to The Big Chill Podcast. This is episode 313, Talking Horses with Maddie Plowell. Chillians, welcome back to the Big Chill Podcast. I'm Frank, joined as always with Eddie and Sam. So we have a great interview for everyone today who's joining in. Uh, but first, maybe uh, talk a little
1: Olympics. That might be the most awkward sentence I've ever heard. It was a what? little bit like listening to someone going through speech therapy. No, I mean, yes. For I know we'll have new people joining. We've got the interview with Maddie Playle coming up. Uh, and I guess that will be 30 to 40 minutes into this episode. The real question, Frank, you might not have as strong enough opinion on where the next destination for Messi is, but say Arsenal were to sign Messi, bigger transfer coup. Messi going to Arsenal? or Jamie Tart making a shocking return to AFC Richmond in the championship.
0: <laughs> oh, what a segue! Oh man. Spoiler. You just alert. want me to sing the Jamie Tart song? <laughs> Not really, actually. Yeah, could, if I could vote strongly. <laughs> we'll go back that. to Messi. <laughs> Fine. Yeah, so let's, uh, we, can, we can shift the discussion to Ted Lasso, episode two of season two. So as Eddie already said, that is a spoiler. If, if you haven't
1: watched it, <laughs> you've been spoiled. The very um, end of the episode has just been spoiled for you. But go yeah. watch it anyway. It's, it's all right.
0: You have been fully spoiled. Um, yeah, so we talked the last for episode one. We made the kind of the, we all had this general feeling that even though season one wasn't very realistic, it was slightly realistic in in its sports sense. But season two seems to have lost any relevance to real sports with first the. Killing of a dog on a PK, Uh, not very realistic. And then the fact that they're relegated and no one really even knows that they're relegated. And now I've 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 just I know I know know. what you're gonna say. Oh, you're not PK. It's a penalty. (laughs) (laughs) Nailed you're the most annoying person (laughs) in the world.
1: (laughs) I'm just doing it for our own good because undoubtedly there'll be people listening who had exactly that same reaction.
0: Yeah, well, tell Ali he can go screw himself.
2: (laughs) Well, no, I honestly thought you were talking about P.K., the Barcelona player. Oh, P.K.
0: Subban? uh, Like this. P.K. Subban, the hockey player? (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) But now you have a player who seemingly was doing well for a club, just decided to leave mid-season to join a reality TV show, and now the club is... Fully on board with just letting him go and letting him sign
1: wherever. Well, so we have to try and figure out who is Jamie Tart? Because a lot of these players are based on, they're sort of f- kind of supposed to be real life. I mean, like Roy Kent is Roy Keane, right? That is who he is. Minus the fact that Roy Keane's, the end of Roy Keane's career looks a bit different to the end of Roy Kent's career. Who is Jamie Tart? Because he was at City, he gets sent on loan to another Premier League player. So you need a top four team sending a player out on loan for half a season. He then seemingly returns to his parent club. Does okay in the remainder of the season based on implications, but...
0: Was doing well the next season, right? Isn't that kind of what they said? He was getting a lot of time, making some good plays, but his father was constantly yelling at him that he's not getting enough.
1: No, that would be the same season. Because he left, he basically, he left Richmond midway through the last season. So he would have gone back to City in January. He would have played out the half of that season. Then he would have done the fake Love Island, or whatever it was called.
2: Lust beyond something. Yeah, over
1: the summer. And then City have released him. I can't, let's leave out the reality TV aspect. I'm trying to think of who he is from the standpoint just of playing for a big four side sent on loan to another Premier League side and then comes back and kind of establishes himself in the team.
2: Until the establishing in the team, I'd say like Lingard, because obviously he went to another club. He was the full-on, like he was basically the, the kind of resurgence at West Ham, or he was the face of West Ham in a way. And then, but the, the third part of your story hasn't happened.
1: And also he's younger. I don't know how old Jamie Tart is, Keep but point. I'm assuming he's supposed to be sort of 22, 23. Although it is unclear. Yeah. But
2: yeah, it's true. I have no idea. Like, um yeah, it's a tough one actually. I don't know in reality who it is, but obviously, it comes across as this kind of like diva, pretty boy. You know, cares more about the brand in like a Pogba way that we would talk about, right? Like the Pogba type of football of sorts. Like you play football more for the brand than you do the in the football, which is a discredit to Pogba. But
1: the real question, though, before we get into the, talking about the episode in more detail, though, what's more unrealistic? This whole scenario with Jamie Tart or the fact that when he rejoins Richmond and they're on the training pitch, it's snowing, which they're eight games into the season. So it's snowing in London in September, early September. See, now that when I
0: first saw that, I thought that was their way of saying time has passed and it's now like November, December. But then when you hear their conversation, it's as if it was like the day before because then the therapist comes in and the owner is like, oh, it's nice to meet you. So-and-so told me the other day about- Yeah, no, it's the, it's For- the next day. Yeah, I know. It's, the next it's like the next day. day. I know. I thought, you know, you were going to say what's more unrealistic, that or the fact that everyone is really surprised when he comes out when he was clearly probably just in the locker room at the same time as them getting dressed-
3: <laughs> yeah but
1: the snow to me is the least <laughs> ted lasso is as we've discussed in the previous episode great show not grounded in reality in any way but the snowing that's where you start to realize that they might not really be thinking of the timeline of the season which we've sort of already discussed on the previous episode but i don't think they've really put much thought into the fact that eight matches into the season in the championship would be mid-september and i don't know the last time it snowed mid-september in london but it would definitely be a talking point in the show when it happened isn't this crazy it's snowing
2: there would be some serious global warming and climate change concerns if it happened like that's for sure well
1: i mean sam greece and turkey are on fire right now so there's serious global <laughs> warming concerns yeah, in right. real life so maybe the show is just trying to bring that storyline
2: in as well what what was interesting, though, was in the first season, obviously, Ted Lasso was there and he was so friendly and bringing everyone together and kind of making friends and making everyone kind of like uh, just kind of band together and be a team in a way. And I actually like the kind of slight change in that mentality with this therapist has come in with the perception that are they just happy because they're a bunch of friends playing football? or are they or do they need to be happy when they're winning as kind of like playing for a team playing for that money and that kind of thing. So obviously seeing Ted make a decision that's unpopular is a break from well, they were never winning pop- though.
1: They were relegated. They were
2: never really winning. <laughs> they were relegated then it was eight in a row, but it was always that feeling that it didn't matter and he said that a lot. The winning or losing didn't matter. I th- it was the
1: I think he, I do think there's been an interesting transition from him as a character this fear of the therapist has revealed a less positive side of him. Well, I mean,
0: yeah, you're right. Cause obviously I think he feels his best attribute as a coach is kind of putting his players in the right mindset. And now you have a, the psychologist who's coming in, who's doing that job for him. So obviously he's pretty insecure about that now and is going to second guess everything he does. Um, But I, I, I was wondering how they were going to bring Jamie Tart back into this because obviously he was a main character and they don't just cut out main characters in TV shows. This was not a way I thought they were going to bring him back and I don't know if it's a way I like that they
1: brought him back. I mean, I guess you're right. He was, they either had to ditch him altogether as a character, which would have been fair. But if they were going to bring him back, this is kind of the only way that they really could have because of the fact that they're in the championship. So if he's at City, then they could have played a cup game against him and that would have been it. But that's not a real storyline that you could have run with for too long. This is the only way to have him be a, a week in, week out recurring character.
2: Also, we there's a lot of dealings going on in that pub. <laughs> like the coach and lasso just talking openly about tactics problems and things like that. Then they then they obviously have the Jamie, uh, when they get photographed, it's like that mm, <laughs> this pub is an incredible, like meeting area for minds to do with AFC Richmond. It's quite funny.
1: Another one of the least realistic aspects of the show, but one that doesn't bother me at all.
2: Scene of the darts, scene of that amazing emotional dart scene. It was, Oh, it was so that, good. that pub
1: has some serious stories to tell been yeah. ownership dealings going on <laughs> there've been the managers just in there having a pint and a meal on a daily basis seemingly um they're hardcore World supporters listings yeah, super hardcore supporters who don't go to matches who just go and watch the matches in a pub even though it wouldn't be televised you know there's whole there's tons of things going on there that are very interesting
0: <laughs> overall though i still very much enjoy the show i thought it was a pretty funny
1: episode it was a better episode. Um, I'm still a little concerned that there is that drift towards being more American a little bit. I have to say, I didn't love the sexual aspect in with the Roy Kent stuff. That seemed oh. a little bit inconsistent with the tone of the show, slightly. Um,
0: you didn't. You didn't like that they turned oral sex into a heartfelt,
2: heartfelt moment, <laughs> or, <Women>. or masturbating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, women I I don't like correct me if I'm wrong here but Uh-oh, women so. don't use the term wanking on themselves. <laughs> like I have um, met
1: I've it. met girls who have
2: I would say it's more now very we're just much get, more associated with It is,
1: but Sam on this particular Now this we're just getting picky. <laughs> you know, this is this is definitely not your area of expertise. <laughs> so nit-piggy. I think we you should um, stay out of this one.
2: Speaking speaking of the Roy kind of scenes in it obviously going back into punditry. I did find that kind of fun though. I did like yeah, the I idea. mean he loses like, he his job. He's very much Roy himself. Yeah,
1: the swearing loses him the job. They went overboard on on the way he could speak on Soccer Saturday, which um the idea that he would just be swearing multiple times, they would have gone off the air and then told and then kicked him out, which has happened on Soccer Saturday when one of the pundits who turned up was drunk. Um so Yeah.
2: I'm, I, of course, it was Merson.
1: No, no, it wasn't Paul Merson. No, no, no. I'm going to slander Paul Merson. Oh, what? No, way to, way to probably, pick on an addict, Sam. Yeah. But,
2: he was probably a point I, drunk.
1: No, I can't think of who it was. But anyway, it doesn't matter. But um, yeah, I thought it was a better episode. I just didn't. I've always thought it was a show that I could have comfortably watched. I mean, Frank, you spoke about watching with your parents. I always thought it was a show that I would have comfortably watched every episode with my parents. I think the masturbation scene and the oral sex scene would have made me mildly uncomfortable. It would have been I mean, I've I've seen movies with sex scenes in them, but the nature of the way it was. Oh, you have any?
2: Good job. With my parents. I know. I'm a big boy. I'm a big boy. (laughs) Oh.
1: My parents have told me that if I'm really good, I might be able to watch some softcore porn when I turn fifty. So I'm I'm hoping. But oh,
2: no, I, I I agree with you. It, <laughs> it,
0: it lost a little bit of the wholesomeness. I mean, and, also- and it wasn't anything egregious, right? But still, it was able to be a funny show without having to hit that genre, that area.
1: For example, I think I would have happily, even though there is swearing in it, if I had like a 12 year old kid, I would have been very happily watching Ted Lasso with my child. That scene would have also made me uncomfortable watching it with my 12 year old son or daughter, my fictional 12 yeah. year old son or daughter. But yeah. But uh, also, I mean, I thought I, going to the masturbation scene, I thought this was going to be a Jamie, and I guess this is what they were trying to set it up for that she was going to be looking at something related to Jamie Tart. Post- so did music. I. It, it was it a was good twist, Roy, but was it worth it? it, it? No. <laughs> <laughs>
2: It was funny seeing his actual retirement video, like and him just bawling his yeah. eyes out, but not while she's masturbating.
1: No. And I mean, we, it would be seriously concerning for me if I had a girlfriend who was masturbating to recordings of me crying. I think that would be a major red flag.
0: Now, two episodes into season two. Who do you think is the funniest or best character so far? Because there has been Still a lot right. of
1: shifts, it's Roy Kent. It's not close it, this season. Roy.
2: I, the highlight of episode two was when he said, "Like I fucking hated Jamie Carragher. How the fuck does he know I love white orchids?" Yes. <laughs> <So> that <wasn't laughs> that was really good. Like, I thought that was good it too. Actually. Sorry, I haven't I haven't said it properly, but it's just that moment. No, my was favorite
1: great. my favorite part of the episode was when he was handing out the trophies to the kids. And there's the best dressed. And he's like, how the fuck can it be the best dressed? You're all wearing the same thing. That, to me, was my favorite one. And I also
0: did enjoy like that little part where he gives it to the one girl. And then she's really excited. And all the other girls
1: are really sad about it. That was funny. Yeah, they he just tosses it on the ground. He's yeah. the star of the show. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the moment hands down. And that is also the concern to me is Ted Lasso as a character who was, was, was the runaway star of... Season one, with other characters doing, you know, being really good, like Roy Kent.
0: Is, is season three, do they change the name to Roy Kent instead of Ted Lasso? No, but I
2: think, <laughs> I think Apple, like Apple TV, will clearly identify that that will do well in Britain as a spin off. So I, I think those kind of things probably will happen.
0: I'll tell you also, the character I'm kind of enjoying too is the trainer turned coach and how aggressive he is towards like the new oh, kid. I, What do you I call don't it? I like it. I don't want to get As this wrong because thank you because you and Eddie were helping me. boy, Kip man. Yeah, no, I no, think no, it's kind of funny where he's like he gets super pissed about like the lavender.
2: <laughs> it's it's interesting, but again, I I don't like when. I think it's a bit too obvious when people do that. Um, I was in your shoes once, but now I'm a manager of you. I'm going to do exactly what was done to me. I think it's a little bit too kind of obvious. And I don't think it suits him well. Like what suited him was the season one style of like, I don't, I see things on a daily basis so I can make these tactics and ideas and recommendations because it fits my personality. Now all of a sudden he's like this expressive extrovert uh, bullying someone fundamentally it, I I don't really like the change uh,
1: it, 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 Are you also disappointed in the change because we said that was the character you were most like and now, <laughs> <laughs> and now Oh yeah
0: Now you're the asshole you, of the show He he does some funny stuff. The time when he called him into the office and then closed both doors back up so the kid had to open them back up.
1: And he's like, thanks for (laughs)
0: coming.
2: (laughs) And he knocked. (laughs) That was kind of funny.
1: But yeah, I... It's good. I'm still enjoying it. I don't think it is as good as season one so far, but obviously you're just going to let it develop a bit. And I do have those general concerns that it's drifting more towards a show aimed aimed at a more American audience, probably based off the success of season one. The interesting thing, I went back and watched the original commercials, you know, where Ted Lasso became a character because he originally was developed, or at least publicly seen, I think it was for... NBC but why is that? no I think it was for NBC it was for their coverage of the Premier League that they created this character of the American going over and becoming the Tottenham Hotspur for Spurs. manager yeah. yeah and then going back and being a pundit in the U.S. after being sacked as Tottenham Hotspur manager after like two days whatever his character arc was interesting to go back and watch this now after a season and two episodes of Ted Lasso in the bank And to compare, a lot of the jokes that he makes in those original um, uh, commercials made it into season one, the little remarks. However, he is an absolute moron in the commercials, whereas he's not a moron in the TV show. Now, I think they were probably right, because he wouldn't be endearing as a character if he was just this idiot. So that was a correct move. But it is funny to go back and watch them and then contrast them
0: yeah i i remember watching those and he's clearly in in he's an idiot and the other aspect of it too is i think it was a little more obnoxious that the british audience would not have liked it for sure like they've toned they toned it down the appropriate amount
1: yeah no no it's, it was the correct decision it's just interesting i'd encourage anyone who out there who Watches Ted Lasso, who hasn't either seen those commercials in a while or has never seen them, to go and watch them and then just to see that character difference. But uh, no, I thought this was a, a pretty good episode and overall better than episode one. But I need Ted Lasso to get back to Ted lassoing. And right now. No, they need to lasso you back in, Eddie. Yeah, exactly. And right now that that loop is missing my head.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, at the moment, they've clearly they've clearly used the episode now to define what's going to be arguably a main story arc. Right. Of like Jamie Tarr's rehabilitation into the squad eventually. So
1: so that's the question. Will it be a good signing? Yeah, they move back up for sure. What do we say it was? They're going to make the playoff. I think they'll make the playoffs because they'll need the drama of the playoffs. And it will be, again, an American audience will understand the playoffs, even if they don't understand the playoff format in the championship. They will understand the idea of this is the playoff finals. That will, we're in the semifinal. Now we're in the final. Winner takes all. You're either up or you're down. Much easier to understand than... We're in third place, and we need to close a six-point gap in the next four matches. <laughs> Our goal difference is slightly inferior coming into the final day. <laughs> you know, yeah. those...
2: we're we're gonna win. The, we're gonna not win the league, but we're going up. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> like we of... finish
1: second, but that's great. We've it's almost as good as finishing first, really. Who cares about the actually winning the championship? It's the, no one really minds.
2: But yeah, I mean, just in terms of like signing a Man City player for the championship that was a starter is a coup. But, like, we've already departed from football norms here. So he has to be a good signing, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it comes down to team chemistry and whether or not he can be a team player. Now, the signs would be from that episode is that he has – it feels like he's already made the, the personal development necessary. So that's going to be – I almost feel like they gave away too much of him being a better person in a single episode because he's got got to to win the team over now he does but and i'm sure there'll be setbacks in his personality (laughs) and his selfishness i'm sure that will happen and not making the extra pass the much famed extra pass but in the space of 20 minutes they basically showed us Okay, Jamie Tart has realized that the thing he really, really loves is playing football, and that Ted Lasso was kind of the father figure he always wanted, and that he's never been happier than when he was playing football under Ted Lasso at Richmond, and he wants to get back to that. We saw all of that in 20 minutes, and I guess that would, I wish they'd made that could have been a two episode arc for us to have been introduced to the idea of Jamie Tart coming back, and then being convinced that he really wanted to be there and that he he wasn't the same showboating all about me, Jamie
0: Tart. This is just uh, a little bit of a side note, but I never watch the previews for a next episode of a TV show. Do you guys do the same? Like, No, I see the point. I don't know. No, I don't. As, as, don't soon know as, as soon as an episode ends and I see it's coming on, I turn it off and Carissa yells at me all the time because she's like, let's watch it. And I say, no, then... You are going into the next episode and something's definitely already spoiled for you. Like you, I want to be enthralled and have no spoilers, no nothing. You know, I want to go in clean, dry.
1: I want to say, and this is going to, I think it's a girl thing, which is going (laughs) to annoy Uh -uh. so many of our listeners. (laughs) I've just firmly placed my foot on that landmine, but I do think I have no interest. I don't want to watch trailers for anything. I basically want to see, oh, this is a movie with a person. I want to I want to see this movie. Oh, well, I and like
0: trailers for movies,
1: though. That's different. No, You're I don't, right. Not nowadays. Trailers for movies. Trailers for movies when we They're were great. kids. They're great. They're like no. movies. Tra- I, I literally, I think if you watch a trailer nowadays from a movie, you've seen the movie.
2: Yeah, it's true. Well, like, well uh, I mean, the problem with trailers these days, though, is half the content doesn't actually make it into the final film, like when they do a teaser trailer or something. So they're even just misleading you. No,
1: that's fine so to me. I understand me. What he's That's saying. fine to me. I would rather every trailer was, here are scenes we've edited out of the movie, <laughs> but this will at least give you an overall a sense of who's in it, what kind of character they're playing, and the general vibe that to me oh, i if i was running well. if i was running a production company that would be my rule for trailers <laughs> or if i was like a director i'd be like no nothing that makes the movie goes in the trailer people will think this is a completely different movie in terms of and especially you could do one of those things like when they had with back to the future right when they filmed a bunch of the scenes with the original actor yeah and then they cut it out, and then Michael J. Fox, they like redid the movie with Michael J. Fox. I would have done this. The trailer would have had no Michael J. Fox. And then you would have gone to the movie and been like, who's this guy? Pretty sure Marty McFly was played by a different character in the trailer. Exactly. You have no clue. Enjoy the movie now.
0: Actually, I just watched a whole special on that Back to the Future. It's on Netflix. There's a, like, How the Movies Were Made show. And one of the movies was Back to the Future, and I talked a lot about that got to be a real
1: gut-wrencher for that guy
0: in the in the well spoiler alert, but in the documentary or whatever it is the the show they say he was like kind of relieved because he knew it wasn't working out like he knew the directors weren't happy at all and and so when they told him he was done he was kind of like okay because i wasn't feeling it at all anyway
1: yeah that's what he said the moment he got fired because he didn't know back to the future was going to be back to the future but, but that's it might not, not have been with, without probably Michael not. J. Fox. And if you are a very grounded, rational person, I hope for you his that. mental health sake, he can make that process that in his own mind. But the alternative is he went and sat down to watch, probably like took his girlfriend on opening day of Back to the Future and went, hey, this is that crap movie I was in that was going to be really, really terrible. Let's go and watch and see how bad it was in the end. And then just sat in the movie theater where people were like, this is the best thing I've ever seen. I hope they make another one and even another one after that. And this is one of the most iconic characters of, of you know this decade. And then you're sitting there being like, ah, oh, I could have done better. I could have been... Michael J. Fox.
2: In Back to the Future.
1: Well, no, I think you'd argue that he just has (laughs) Michael J. Fox's career, minus the Parkinson's, but yeah.
0: Yeah, Eric Stoltz was his name. That's the person who was originally cast and filmed (laughs) half the movie.
1: I mean, in the end, Michael J. Fox didn't have that amazing of a career, I guess you would say. He's a very popular figure, but when you really think, what was Michael J. Fox in...
0: Uh oh, what else what's, did he do? I'm cringing, is what your hot take's gonna be here, Eddie.
1: No, no, it isn't a hot take. No, no, no. What films? Like, I'm trying to think
2: what else. He's got he did. Back to
1: the Future, and then he's got Spin City as a TV show, and I literally cannot think of anything else. And then he has, he's had his kind of cameo as himself in Curb, but I can't really think of anything aside from that that Michael J. Fox has really been in.
0: Well, family ties is also what he was known for before Back to the Future. Okay, that's where he got to start. But I mean, part of the issue, obviously, was even when he was filming Back to the Future, he was already showing signs of of Parkinson's.
1: Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I thought that was like a Spin City era thing. No, that's when it got really bad. (laughs) Okay.
2: He was the narrator in Homeward Bound.
0: Yes, he was. Nailed it. No, he was the dog he was uh
2: well no um, he was okay but I the, thought he was, the chance the dot chance, chance
1: yeah the, yeah he is
2: narrating that's kind of,
1: he's
0: the, dog's the dog one, he's,
1: he's the, the dog, dog is mind. The narrator. he didn't play he didn't dress up as a dog <laughs> and play the dog and now michael j fox in a role like you've never seen him before roof roof roof
2: he went on to do great things, like Beethoven. <laughs> Actually, look at his career now. He did. Uh, he was the voice of Stuart Little. He he played the mouse.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, he played. The, yeah, he played the animated mouse. <laughs> he nailed it too.
2: He's good with animals.
0: So I guess before we go to the interview, any other topics? Anything interesting in the Olympics that you've been watching this week? So I know personally, Joe Kovacs won another silver medal. So. Two Olympics in a row, two silver medals—pretty amazing. Um, I mean, it's
1: it's worth saying when you say you know personally, you know Joe Kovacs personally. Yes, I and I also and I also know personally
0: that I've won the two silver medals. <laughs> no, no I've but won. It's it, a, great it a little bit
1: was like you personally know that Joe Kovacs has won a silver medal, which the whole world could know if they—it's not like a secret. <laughs> Just so you know, guys, I know who won the silver, but no, he's yep. a he's a friend of yours, I guess. Is the, yes, yeah. And hopefully and then, a future podcast guest.
0: Yeah, if we can get him on, you know, two two silver medals, you know, weighs you down a lot. Might not be able to.
1: It's true, actually. Uh, we don't want him anymore because the Big Chill podcast is firmly gold or go home. So, <laughs> Joe, sorry, we'd invited you on. Not interested anymore. Maybe four <laughs> years from now, if you can do a bit better.
2: You can tell him that.
1: I will. That, how far, I'm did, sure he, that'll get how him far did he throw it? As long as I stand, what? Twenty-three meters, let's
2: say. Yes. Yeah, you don't and, want to do like 10 centimeters after his PB. <laughs> or
1: maybe that's how I encourage him. Joe, next Olympics, I'll go and stand 25 meters away from you, <laughs> you can and cave insult in my you. cranium. Yeah, I will volunteer for the Paris Olympics. Could easily do it. I'll make sure I'm one of the people measuring for the shot put. And then as you go to throw, I'll be like, Joe, you've not got it in you. There's no way you could hit me. Just no way. No way.
2: I can't wait for this now four year story arc of Eddie being the shot put measure at the Olympics. I am
0: 5 like centimeters all the work further than that goes into it of like him trying to get into being the shot put measure. I mean, I'm not
1: I'm not denying that the people who do the shot put measuring probably have to do a little bit, but I think it's an attainable goal if I really dedicated my next four years. <laughs> it's oh just a stick. I can't believe it. Yeah, I can't believe I'm a volunteer shot put measurer in the Olympics. All my dreams. Uh, Watched the 400 meter men's final today. Pretty convincing win for the guy from the Bahamas. Can't remember his name. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, aside from that, been enthralled by this story of... uh, the the track athlete from Belarus who's now a seeking political asylum in Poland
2: yeah the I saw a assault. couple of the athletes have been told just not to return basically haven't they they've um, it's crazy it's I I, the, I I guess we'll know by the next podcast but are the u.s in danger of not topping the medals table they're five short of China in gold medals at the moment like I know that China the, notoriously that makes it sound like it's a bad thing but i know that a lot of the events that they do well in are at the the start of the games whereas obviously the ones like team-based ones that go through finish near at the end but are they i've i've never felt like the usa are in danger but this one feels like they are because you you hear about these missed
1: i don't think so because i'll put it this way i'm going to give them two golds in the basketball men's and women's so that's already two more golds let's say you know in track the remaining track events, they're gonna track and field events, they're gonna pick up more goals than China do. So I'm sure they'll end up finishing a few clear. Do you want the current standings?
0: Yes. Okay. So but here's the question I always have: is do you count just total medals or is it just gold? No, no, no. Is no, that no, the true medals, indication?
2: No, gold medals put you at the top. And I'll give you the odds actually after for the two.
1: Okay.
0: So this for is the a gold- this is
1: just there is a just there's a America, I think, ranks it based on total medals. They do because I think the U.S. does it because there's no way they ever lose that. <laughs> yeah. So the U.S. is a total medal thing, whereas the rest of the world goes goes gold first, and then the remaining medals are the tiebreakers. So if you have the same number of golds, it, it's whoever has the most silvers. If you then have the same number of silvers, it's whoever has the most bronze. But U.S. knows as long as we measure it total medals, we're always going to be on top.
0: Yeah. Exactly. That's how it should be. So So right now, China is in the lead with 34 gold medals. The US has 29 gold medals, and Japan is in third with 22 gold medals. If you go to total medal count, the United States has 91 total medals. China has 74, and the Russian Olympic Committee has 58.
2: So odds-wise, you sound like you're pretty comfortable with the USA taking this one, Eddie, yeah?
1: Yeah, I'd put them odds on.
2: So I mean it's a two horse race, so we can't can't talk about value here, but China are odds on. China are four to seven and the USA are five to four to have the most gold medals of the games.
1: I mean, I'd be tempted by the US. I would have to take a more before I really play put any put my money where my mouth is. I would have to take a more detailed look at what the remaining events are, because obviously I don't have a photographic memory of the remaining Olympic events and where the Chinese and American athletes are, respectively. But yeah, I'm, I'm giving America two more golds right off the bat, and I'm trying to think of... But I don't know. But I, I would Could be, be tempted... A- five to four in the US, I would just be tempted to take the US.
2: Could be a good end-of-weekend ACA for you. You have all of your weekend bets going on to a five to four, you five know the eighth where it ends.
1: You know, the killer with Olympic betting is that almost impossible to throw most of the things into an accumulator. Like most British bookmakers will not let you combine like who's gonna win the gold in things and I think they probably do it because they know you could conceivably kind of make a killing in that a lot of people are quite heavy favorites to win their gold and there aren't that many upsets in a lot of events. So you could do a sort of 20-fold accumulator with everyone being one to four or shorter and end up with you know a 10 to one bet and be pretty comfortable with what you have i still think if i was a bookmaker i'd say go for it because someone gets mm. injured someone messes up
2: there was going to be some killers wasn't there right and we always say it with um the singles at wimbledon right you get all of the first rounds where you've got like one to five hundred one to five hundred one to hundred and they don't prevent that because they know that that one Will, will likely happen at some. point. I mean, and you're you're really a bookmaker's
1: dream if you're putting on a twenty fold accumulator at like even money. <laughs> it's like go for it, knock yourself out, because you know something's going to go wrong here. And the same, I mean, I guess Simone Biles, you would have lost on. I'm sure Simone Biles was odds on favorite for events that she withdrew from. So, Oof,
2: that'd be that'd be rough.
1: Yeah, it's a tough up. way to lose it. But again, you're betting on the Olympics, injuries. You know, who knows what happens. Someone gets tripped. Someone crashes. You know, false start. Yeah, yeah it's the, in the
2: corner of a room.
0: I mean, the track has not played out at all with favorites. Um, you know, besides some of the throwing events. Actually, a lot of the favorites have won, but a lot of the actual on-track events, the favorite has not won. So,
1: yeah, I mean, just swimming a little differently. Swimming, a lot of favorites have won. Yeah, I mean it's track, I mean we've not really addressed it, right, but the fact that an Italian won the 100 men's 100 meters is crazy. First time insane. Insane. ever. I would have never thought in my lifetime I would have seen an Italian win, which kind of makes no sense because it wouldn't stun me if a British person won, but an Italian winning <laughs> seems just inconceivable. But uh but yeah. Who would have thought? What a world, eh? 2021. But anyway, on that note, should we hand things over to our to our interview well welcome back to the big chill podcast we are delighted to now be joined by maddie playle uh the journalist for the racing post and also a contributor to the racing post podcast maddie thank you for taking the time to speak with us
3: thank you i'm pleasantly surprised that you got the pronunciation of my name spot on first time doesn't always happen
1: (laughs) (laughs) i always i always said Yeah, long time practicing before we ever have a guest on. It's it's at least 48 hours of work. (laughs) We reached out to you because just the insight that you provide into the, you know, you're really active on social media and the articles that you write for the Racing Post. And also, I know Frank in particular is a very big fan of the Racing Post podcast. So we're big fans of yours. And we just wanted to get you on to, to speak about your career and then also just speak about horse racing in general.
3: Yeah, it sounds it sounds very good. Um, where to start, hey? I mean, I'm still relatively new to the horse racing game, I guess you could say, but a lot's happened very quickly.
1: Yeah, and I know I know you will have been over your kind of the your breakthrough into re- covering uh, horse racing and your your journalism career. So I don't want to make you go into too in depth, but it would just be interesting just for our listeners just to get a kind of quick. I think we probably have people who listen, who have aspirations of getting into either journalism or sports in one format or another. And I think it can always feel sort of unattainable. So it'd just be interesting to to have a really quick description of exactly how it came about for you.
3: Absolutely. And I think probably I'd be slightly unique as well in that horse racing historically has been seen as quite a closed off almost elite world um me personally I don't have any family members or even friends um into the horse racing industry I'd pretty much had um aside from me and my family being animal lovers and horse lovers didn't really have any connection to it um, until I turned about 13 14 um, it's quite a funny story actually um, my mum used to put the tv on in my bedroom on a timer on Saturdays um to wake me up at 7am to stop me lazing in bed being a typical teenager um and it just so happened that the morning line which is sort of the the morning magazine magazine show for channel four racing would come on at that time and i would sit and watch it and i didn't have a clue about horse racing i don't even think i'd probably been to a race course only a handful of times as a child maybe but um that's really where it all began and I don't really know how, but it spiraled and I got the bug, as people say, and taught myself as much as I could. Uh, I was quite embarrassed about being into racing initially because I was very young and insecure, not necessarily saying that's a reflection of the sport, although maybe. Um, but I didn't tell anyone about it. Even when I set up my Twitter account, probably when I was about 15, no one at my school knew that I was interested in horse racing. I wouldn't talk to anyone about it because as far as I was concerned, it was sort of an old man's sport and I didn't know anyone who was into it. So I didn't really know any different, I suppose, call that ignorance. Um, I'm not saying racing is like that at all. It's definitely not. But as as a teenager with no experience of the industry that that was my thinking and I didn't want people to sort of pick on me for it I suppose which seems crazy now because I'm incredibly proud to do what I do and I love it and you know the more I can talk about it the better but in truth that's how it was um sorry this isn't a very short explanation <laughs> but I mean uh,
1: it's you're summarizing your life so it is pretty quick. Yeah, there you <laughs> I go. Didn't...
3: um So when I was about, I was in the the last year of my A-levels at school and I had the opportunity just through Twitter, actually, a lot of my relationship with the sport comes through Twitter, whether that be finding a community of racing fans that I didn't have near me. um, I actually sent a tweet to a guy who worked for the racing post jokingly saying oh you can get me some work experience at the racing post now and he actually did um so I guess I have him to thank a lot and uh so for that week again I'm only from a small village um and my mum actually wouldn't let me go to London for two weeks on my own when I was about 17 so she came with me and worked from a hotel for two weeks uh while I was on uh, in, in Canary Wharf in London, so quite daunting, I suppose. Uh, but the minute I got into the office, and I was scared stiff. <laughs> but the minute I got into the sort of news environment and the racing environment, it sounds cliche, but instantly I just felt like it was somewhere that I belonged. I was surrounded by people who were like me, and yeah, it was it was just fantastic. So after that two week work experience. Um, I finished school and it was always my aim. That's where I want to go back to. I want to go back to the racing post and I want to be a journalist, which is not something that I considered as a career opportunity. Really, it was more, I want to be involved in racing some way. Uh, And and that just happened. I wrote a bit for, I was lucky enough to write for Channel 4, uh, little bits on their website. I wasn't formally employed or anything. I was just volunteering. Uh, So I was lucky to be given that opportunity too. But essentially, um, when I finished school, I wrote a letter, long story short, that was published in the Racing Post. They noticed it. Um, it was in response to another letter that had been published in the paper. And my response got published. And uh, on the back of that, they were applying for interns. A couple of weeks later, I uh, came down to London, did the interview, got the job. And the rest is history from there.
1: But it's, you know, it's really interesting. And I guess it does show all the, the advantages of just kind of asking for something that you want which again seems to be a consistent theme in people that we do have on. And also the way we get our guests. Uh, Ferris often involves a fair amount of spamming and just reaching out to people. So it does play a a big part.
3: It's interesting, isn't it? Because I've had a lot of people say to me, I'm someone who comes across like I have quite a lot of confidence, but underneath uh, everything I I like to say yes to things. um, You know, I don't like that sort of fear of missing out. And I like to, be busy, but underneath it all, I'm, I promise you, I'm not that confident a person, maybe that's something to do with those initial steps into, into racing, but I find that odd. Some people often say, you know, when you're presenting or whatever, you seem to have a lot of confidence. I assure you that's not, not always the case.
0: So I guess one of the things we can get into, which I know you're, you're very passionate about is you kind of made the comment when, when you were younger, you were a little hesitant to tell other people, you know, being a a teenage girl in horse racing. Um, And it's kind of an old man's club, which what how do you think the sport is progressing now since you've been in it for a while? Do you do you see it transitioning where you have more people like yourself that are more women and minorities that are getting into it at younger ages and being excited about it?
3: That's an interesting question, because before I knew nothing about racing. So although I viewed it as a sort of inclusive club, if you like, I'm not saying that's actually how it was. That's just my view of it. Um, And I guess now I am sort of immersed in it. So they're two different perspectives. Firstly, I never, you know, I don't think there should be barriers for anyone wanting to enjoy sport and be involved in sport. Uh, And if me coming from my background helps anyone, that sounds quite self-indulgent. But yeah, it is something I'm passionate about because whether we like it or not, I guess horse racing, the sport of kings does have a reputation for being that closed-off um, sport, but I don't think it is. I don't think it is at all. Um, I've known many, you know, I've met many, many people through the industry, some lifelong personal friends, and lots of professional connections too. And overwhelmingly, my experiences have been positive, and I just consider myself very lucky to do what I do. But Of course, I think there's always more we can do to seem more accessible um, and just open doors for people and and make people understand what's so great about our sport because I think some cross-sections of society maybe don't understand the sport as much. And I think once you get the understanding, the love can follow, if that makes sense.
2: Yeah, I, I understand that. And there's this idea sometimes of being like in the country life versus the city life, and if you, you may not understand it as much if you've never grown up kind of in the rural parts of say like the UK or Ireland or something like that. But um, it, it's interesting you mentioned about no barriers to any part of the sport. So naturally there's a lot of media and press about female jockey representation and female jockeys in, in both jumps and flats. But what about the other parts like um, in the stables, in the media, do, do you find that they're all kind of progressing at the same rate or do you find that maybe... There might be a little bit of emphasis in the more frontline part, but some parts maybe aren't progressing as quickly as you'd hope or like to see within society.
3: That's a really tough question, because I would like to have more regular contact with people so that I could speak on their behalf on that one. yeah, it, it's an interesting one, isn't it? I mean, my my mum, for instance, has often said, do you think being a woman in racing is a unique selling point? And in a way, do you actually think it's worked in your favour because there aren't many women in racing? And I, I find that quite an interesting concept. And my only response to that would be, well, if it is, and if I am sort of uh, getting the opportunities I am because I'm a woman, then surely that's only because other women have been denied those opportunities in the past. Uh, So it's interesting, but I would like to think that there's progression there for anyone who works hard. Um, But I think maybe to say it's, you know, total equality, that would be a little bit ignorant and perhaps a little bit misguided. Um, I don't know about all facets of the industry, you know, in, in that much scrutiny in terms of uh, on a personal level but I definitely think things are going in the right direction anyway
1: now, I guess we've and got your thoughts a little bit well an insight into your career and the kind of diversity into the sport you fell in love with the sport at 13 what was was there a particular horse that contributed to that or was it just racing in general
3: I think it was just racing in general um something I've been thinking about a lot recently is actually just my connection to animals in general maybe it's happened because of COVID because we've all been inside and ultimately I'm a lover of the outdoors and and any animals really so I think that played uh, played a key part in it um I have had favorite horses of course I have I'm drawn to them um but I wouldn't say that was necessarily the catalyst for my love of the sport. I think incredibly, it was just something that happened organically. And I, I'm so thankful that it did because um, I think horse racing, you know, it gives me my career, but it also gives me a lot of purpose. And some people don't necessarily have that passion in their lives. So I feel very fortunate that I have that.
1: So you've had some favorite horses then. What, what are they?
3: Definitely. uh, If you follow me on social media at all, you will know I had particular fondness for a jumps horse called Thistlecrack, who was around a couple of years ago now. And I must admit, the initial attraction was spurred by a bet I had uh, when he won the long distance hurdle at Newbury for the first time. And I remember just watching him and thinking, I don't think I've ever seen a horse have this much power and sustain it for such a long time and just be so... Exuberant, um, you know, almost showboating. And you can almost see the charisma of the horse through the way he moves, the jockey's body language, etc. Um, and I was lucky enough a couple of years later to go to the trainers open day, the trainer who trained him and see him in the flesh. And um, he's just a, a beautiful horse, um, big, sort of imposing. Uh, and I just fell in love with him at his best. He was unbeatable, I would say uh unfortunately his career was blighted by some injury but there was that moment where you just thought is there anything that could could beat this horse you know whether even I think he was the first novice chaser in history to win the King George chase at Kempton no other horse had done that before and that was just after two runs three runs over fences which is pretty unheard of really uh so yeah that that's a relationship I forged and then um Just last year, actually, in November, when he was coming back to the track, I managed to do a feature with him and visit him and his trainer and speak to the jockey around him and to actually spend time with a horse like that. Uh, And he was so gentle as well. Incredible character, really, for a horse that powerful and that imposing that he would have such a unique character. From the people I've spoke to, that's not always the case when horses are good. They can be quite spirited and even aggressive, but... Uh, I think, I like to think the, the love was mutual anyway. Um, and I found that really, really uh, enjoyable and rewarding part of my career. It was almost like a dream come true, I suppose you could say.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I, I my favourite horse of all time is Workforce. And uh, and that came about also, I guess, through it, through a bet. I am fairly confident in it going into the 2010 derby. And and then had the, pl- the pleasure of going to the ARC to see it win then that year, and Sam was there as well, and never looked back, although the career was kind of fell off a cliff not long after that, but still lived long in my memory. I guess one of the stigmas, you know, you kind of talked about the feeling as if there was a stigma attached to it, horse racing being a kind of industry for old men. There's also, I suppose, a stigma from the betting standpoint. How much do you feel then your relationship obviously with the racing post which part of it is tipping but how how much of it relies on how much of your interest relies then on the the betting part of the the sport versus just loving the the sport itself
3: well I think first and foremost, I fell in love with the sport for you know the, the the sport the animals and the racing um but I'd be lying if I said that the the betting didn't fascinate me. I mean, that's the great thing about racing. It has so many interesting facets to it. And I'm the sort of person who I want to know as much as I can about all of them. Bloodstock, for instance, I'm absolutely fascinated by. Um, But betting, yeah, for sure. It definitely grew when I joined the racing post because obviously I was of of age to gamble then. Um, I was never sort of a crazy on that front, very reserved. But ultimately here... I'm surrounded by incredible knowledge, really, from tipsters to people behind the scenes who wouldn't get the credit they deserve. Uh, You learn so much, you absorb so much of what other people say and you define and refine your own approach to tipping and betting and how you make opinions on races. Uh, So that's something that's very much evolved since I've been at the Racing Post. And like any racing fan, like any punter, that's going to change over time.
2: Do you think, um, so speaking of kind of image and, you know, Eddie touched on the kind of gambling part at the moment, do you think horse racing has a bit of an image issue with some of the things that have happened more recently in a couple of years, like um, uh, wrongly, in my opinion, but there was a lot of press around Cheltenham being kind of a super spreader event for the COVID um, outbreak. You've had the Gordon Elliott pictures recently, obviously, and more recently the Panorama in the UK about uh, retired racehorses or injured racehorses, and what kind of happens to them? Do, do you think there's a bit of a very recent image suffering issue at the moment as well with horse racing?
0: Sam, do you want to bring it's... the mood down a little more? Or...
2: I'm, I'm anything else <laughs> <Sam? laughs> you want to throw out? Or do you? Or do you,
1: you? You've got your running joke, Sam, that you're an anti-vaxer, and now you're now you're denying the super spreading spreader event.
2: Well, I'm, I'm, I, now, I
0: had, now I have to deny. We went from it, favorite horses to, to the. Four probably worst things that have happened to horse racing in the past.
3: Final <laughs> question. People, people, I don't know if they have a view of me being quite critical of, of that sort of thing. Maybe it's because I have that outside perspective and I'm not totally immersed in the sport. But I think it is a valid question. And these things, it, it's it's almost a dirty word, I think sometimes public perception of horse racing, some people are keen to sort of ignore it and say, well, oh, the public want horse racing banned, so we shouldn't take on board what they have to say. Uh, I think that's a very dangerous standpoint to have. And I do think things like the Gordon Elliott instance, specifically now we're living in a, a very different world to one 10 years ago, five years ago even. And whether it be social media, uh, you know, you, you lose context everything's polarized these days and when uh, a photo like that one for instance is released it has a huge impact on our industry um and i, I think that's something we should take very very seriously uh, with regards to to other things as well i think racing has lots to be proud of and we do lots of things correctly but you might see a theme emerging here i, co- I think There is no value in sitting back and being happy with what we've achieved or what we've done, specifically when instances like the ones that you mentioned are happening. uh, We need to be on the front foot. We need to be proactive when it comes to not protecting or not defending our sport. But I think to assume that everything is okay is just not a helpful viewpoint. I think we should try and take on board. Uh, criticism, and I think we should value it. And I think we have, I, I wrote about it in a recent column I did for the Racing Post, and I think we have to have confidence in what we have to say. We have to have an understanding of different aspects of the industry that have been questioned, and we have to just portray um, a voice that is, you know, not ignorant to these things happening and that we are positive and we're going to tackle them going forward I think that's really really important because whether you necessarily agree with them or not there are people out there who do not agree with horse racing and it's you know you only have to look at other sports and how they've changed in recent years as well you have to move with the times and you have to be willing to have conversations ultimately I think
1: is that quite tough? I mean, because obviously you had the panorama um, piece that revealed, you know, some fairly disappointing sides of the horse racing industry in the UK. Is it tough working for the Racing Post? Which I know that this isn't the purpose of the uh, of of it, but it comes across a little bit as a sort of you know something that is going to only look at the positives of the horse racing industry. Its purpose is to to spread the passion for racing. Is it tough then? do you feel as if it's difficult to speak? You've touched on it a bit then, but that there is a resistance internally at all to speak about the negative sides of things and to address them?
3: Not at all. Not at all. And I would say if anything about, about racing being uh, the racing post purpose to promote the sport, I wouldn't say that's true at all. Uh, At the end of the day, we're, sharing news and while some people are going to have views on whether we have agendas against certain things you know that's not our role our role is to report on what's happening uh and you know where where relevant give our opinions in comment pieces like the the columns i wrote but no i wouldn't say it's difficult at all to talk out and if anything i'd say it's important that's what we need uh we need people to discuss difficult things and we can't shy away from them and pretend they aren't there. Uh, so personally, I've never found that, uh, difficult and I've never, there's never been any barriers to me talking about challenging topics.
1: Well, I guess then before we move on to more positive topics, then one thing, if there were rules or within the racing industry that you think could be changed in to address some of the concerns about animal welfare, I know, for example, in the US, they've been trialing whipless racing um, this season. Is there anything that is there any are there any sort of quick fixes that you think, in your opinion, could be done that might make people less concerned about how the animals are being treated?
3: I'm not sure on that word "quick fixes" because I think if you're doing anything quickly, it's probably not the the right approach to take. Uh, And again, it's not necessarily just about my viewpoint. Uh, If you, for instance, you talk about the whip recently, uh, the BHA have uh, spoken about their steering groups that they have on the whip. And I think this is a really important uh, group and an important move because it involves different sides of the industry. You know, the British racing industry is famously (laughs) has so many different facets uh, often opposing ones um but this group has been set up involving lots of different people lots of different representation to discuss openly and talk about what their proposed changes if any are going to be made going forward and i think it's just important to have those conversations and respect other people's views because we're all coming from a slightly different place on on issues like that um in terms of quick quick fixes no, i don't think there is I think a lot of it is in the education and in the understanding of, of these things and racing should be uh, not afraid to talk out about the things it does well when it comes to rehoming horses and we rightly should celebrate our success stories I'm not saying we that means we shouldn't shine a light on when things aren't going so well um but nothing, nothing comes to mind. I think it's about having a long-term collaborative approach rather than. There's nothing that I think would instantly solve any issues we may or may not have.
2: Any happier questions, Frank?
0: Yeah. So- <laughs> <Come> on, please.
3: <laughs> it's been a long day here. <laughs>
0: so, so you said, I mean, obviously, you you got into the sport because you love the horses and and love the animals. Um, so you're currently in the media side. Have you ever have you ever had any want or idea of maybe going into a different aspect of the of the sport
3: it's really interesting actually because although when i grew up my family didn't own any horses uh, they couldn't afford them uh, when i was about 15 my sister who is a far better rider than me and is far braver uh actually got her first horse and since then our sort of herd has grown uh <laughs> it's nothing particularly professional uh but we we love our horses immensely but saying that when I learned to ride um I'm not so I'm not a very good rider at all but when I learned to ride one of the horses I actually learned to ride on was a ex-race horse interestingly I tried to uh, he's passed away now but interestingly I tried to trace him a couple of weeks ago and it made me quite emotional because you build bonds with these horses and Everyone who has been involved with him understands that. Uh, I didn't get any luck, but hopefully one of these days I will understand more about where he came from. But uh, yeah, when I was learning to ride on him, uh, I went through a stage of wanting to go to the British Racing School and take part in their course that they do. I think it's a seven-week course. Uh, It's like a foundation course introductory into horse racing. So that did play on my mind for some time. Uh, I wasn't afraid of the hard work and the mucking out and and things like that but ultimately I just (laughs) I'm not brave enough Uh, I've had some bad experiences with horses and bad falls and I wish I did but I don't quite have the bottle to uh, ride a racehorse. but I would love to be able to say one day that I could do it I mean various members of the media have done charity races and, and things like that and as much as I'm okay with hacking out around the village or something like that I feel like getting on a thoroughbred race or stuff, a gallop is it's <laughs> a bit beyond me so one day I'll give it a go but um no I, I don't think so uh other than that I've ever thought about a different area of the industry uh and funny I didn't I always said I didn't want to be a journalist when I was very very young uh I don't know why I just I remember saying that once uh and here I am so it's funny how things work out
1: Frank had tried to become a, a flat jockey, but they, they told him he was too short, so he couldn't make the grade.
0: How
3: can you be too short for a flat jockey? I don't think that's possible. <laughs> no, I,
1: thought
0: not... he, I thought he was gonna say I was way too heavy, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, that no,
3: too. No. You've got out lightly there for sure.
1: <laughs> Turning our attentions more to this season of racing, um, which horses, I think they're the obvious ones, like Bayid obviously is kind of talk of the town at the moment. Are there any other horses that have really caught your eye or that you're looking forward to seeing over the the next couple of months?
3: As a whole, you know, what I've been really uh, enjoying the three-year-old Colts, particularly uh, the Derby and its relevance to the wider public and, and indeed the breeding industry uh, has come into question in recent years. And often in racing, it's a lot about hype, And we didn't necessarily have that one chosen horse coming into this season. Uh, If we did, it was by the time the derby came around, it was Bolshoi Ballet. Um, But anyway, I think I've just been really refreshed by how good these three-year-olds are. Adyar has been a wonder. He was a fantastic derby winner. Great story surrounding it. And the fact that he could win the King George and become the first horse to do so since Galileo in, I think, 2001 is huge. Uh, It really provides a fillip for that race. Um, And there are so many others as well. You mentioned Bayeed. We had some really good Royal Ascot winners this year. Alan Kerr is a horse that I like a lot. Uh, I'm going to forget them all now. Obviously, on the Philly side, you have Snowfall. Uh, She, I think, has, has been brilliant, but arguably not faced the same strength and depth as opposition as Likes of Addy uh, Hurricane Lane, again, the stable mate, that's a, a fascinating dynamic for Godolphin. Usually we're used to seeing Coolmore dominating these races. And, and now we have two very similar horses, actually, both by Frankel, both strong, powerful, staying horses who, you know, the world's their oyster, really. Uh, I'm a big fan of uh, a mare called Wonderful Tonight, trained by David Menizier, won the Hardwick Stakes at Royal Ascot. I actually was lucky enough to go and see David a couple of weeks ago now. Uh, that was fantastic. You know, with, with my role these days, I tend to be quite office-based and then we've had COVID, so I've been working from home. So just to be on a gallop again was just a, a great experience. But I love that mare as well. I think she's my, my quiet fancy for the ARC. And I love that it's someone different that we're talking about, a uh, different trainer, different connections um and by Eid, as you say there's lots to be excited about even in the sprinting division with batash being retired it's that new blood that's what we love about racing i see frank shaking his head there i'm just sad to see batash, batash go <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah that was probably if i had a favorite horse he's he has to be up there in the in the top three just i love the pure speed of that horse it's just so fun to watch when it's at its peak and it just flies out and it's it's gone within three furlongs that was so fun
3: to watch indeed and i think for for me as well something else that i'm really passionate about is international racing that's why i love when we get to see horses from different jurisdictions compete against each other we haven't obviously seen that much this year maybe with that's due to covid uh but if ever a race is a true international group one, I I love to see that. And those are the races that I particularly enjoy as well. Well,
1: in that case, it's kind of natural. You've already mentioned four horses that will probably be heading to the arc. We uh, kind of end up spending three months building up to the arc and discussing each year as to whether or not this is going to be the best ever arc. Once again, that's, it always
3: is, isn't it? Yeah, isn't it? every year it's the best it. ever. Asked. You always yeah. think
1: it's gonna be, <laughs> yeah, and then it, yeah. then it isn't. Then the something happens. yeah, the discussion has once again started. Um, and you've said, "Wonderful tonight" is your kind of arc fantasy. Are there any others within the four that you mentioned, or some of the others that you, you know, you have the likes of Mishrif who kind of struggles in the UK but runs runs well elsewhere, or Saint Mark's Basilica. Are there any others that you think could be interesting for the the race?
3: I'm getting my market up now just so that I can (laughs) refer to them all for you. Well, we have to talk about Tanawa, recency bias, I suppose, in that she's just gotten one on seasonal reappearance, but she was, of course, one of the best horses around last year, winning uh, the Breeders' Cup, and she looks as good as ever on the basis of what she's achieved. For a lot of people, though, it is about that, sort of knockout exchange between Adiar and Hurricane Lane. I really love the idea of having two heavyweights against each other. And as a, an international racing lover, I guess, as well, I've got one eye on if the Japanese are going to send over some horses in the, in the market. We have Contrail, we have Chronogenesis, so I think Murphy Murphy's going to ride... Labour parlay among the other entries. I always think that's such a great dynamic of, of this race. The fact they went so close with Orfev, who was a real again. I don't know if it's a silly word to use, but charismatic horse. You felt like you could really see his personality, um, almost cheeky, and I I, I like that. Um, so yeah, it, it it's going to be quite dimensional, isn't it? If they all turn up St Mark's Basilica, I'm not 100% sure whether he'd stay a mile and a half or if Those sort of conditions are what he would want. And if anything, of the ones towards the top of the market, Snowfall is the one that I wouldn't want to side with. Uh, As much as she's getting those three-year-old allowances, we know they are key, three-year-old filly. Uh, And she's been scintillating on track. I do worry a little about the substance of her form compared to some of the others. We've seen the Hardwick stakes. All right, it probably wasn't a vintage renewal at the time. But we now look at it and it's, you know, the form has worked out well. Uh, Adyar winning a race like the King George Hurricane Lane, he showed he could travel. I'd just like to see Snowfall do it against her elders and her, you know, colts really, before I really bought that hike. But it's no surprise that she's at the top of the market, given uh, the advantages she's going to get, I suppose.
1: Yeah, I do agree with you. It'd be I'd want it to be a bit more tested, especially, I mean, 100 to 30 or three to one in some places. You might get four to one somewhere. It's quite short for a, a, a horse in the arc. I mean, there are rarely big price winners. It is usually a, a single figure winner, but still it's a relatively short price. And also before Frank and Sam chime in with their, their early arc selections, I'll agree with you that the Japanese, I've, I've kind of gone to most arcs over the last sort of 15 or so years. The two... The two things that have built the most atmosphere there for me was whenever there's a good Japanese horse, because there's always a good Japanese contingent in the crowd and they are, the way they support their horses, it feels much more sort of as if it's a team sport than you normally see in horse racing, which I think adds another dimension. And the only thing that's come close to that recently is when the Nable was going for the third arc. And then again, it felt like everyone wanted it to win um, in a way that's probably unusual, even for short price favorites where you know everyone has money on it. But Frank said the
3: stories, isn't it? I think that's what yeah. makes the races work. And, and I mean, I would love to go racing in Japan, and I'm fascinated by the way different countries operate. Uh and I think there's a lot that different jurisdictions can learn from each other on that front. But yeah, I think yeah, it's the heart, really, isn't it? The heart wants to 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 cheer these, these stories and just connect with the people around them, I suppose.
1: Yeah, especially as they can never get a winner with the Japanese when <laughs> they send their horses. So it's just- They there, will eventually. That, so yeah, maybe, but it might be, I have this whole theory surrounding the England football team that continual disappointment uh, leads to more long-term enjoyment and that you kind of, you're more interested forever because you never quite reached the, the pinnacle of your sport. Maybe with the Japanese, it would be the same with the Ark. If they won it one year, then the next year, there would be no Japanese people there. So it might be better off a few seconds and thirds coming in.
3: You're talking about the England football team now, so you've got to be careful, but I'll see where you're coming from. (laughs)
2: i it, try and we, annoy
1: as many people as possible in a single recording
2: we we don't get it either so it's absolutely fine i mean in fairness last year we weren't on enable we were we were gunning for Gaiath last year before obviously really hold get. hold on in. hold so, on hold on
1: we is not true two of you were we, I was frank not. and i we, if, we're, if
3: we're talking about last year's arc and again this is I'll have people on my back claiming I'm after timing, but I'm not. If you look at my tweets and sort of pieces I've done for the racing post uh, in swoop, my heart breaks. Uh, I was a big believer in that horse each way invested by my standards quite a lot, not by anyone else's standards. Uh, I think at 25 to one, 33 to one uh, had so much belief in that horse. Again, I love the German pedigree Adler Flug, German Derby winner uh and oh, he should have won
1: that race he should have won and, and that was him doesn't I mean, tempt that, this was, year
0: yeah, yeah I, I was gonna ask the same thing because right now it's sitting almost at 30 to one and it's you know runner up in last year's arc it you know if experience counts in a race like that then that it seems does, very overpriced
3: <laughs> i wouldn't it does and i should probably back him now before i you know he wins and, and i cry uh but i think this year's race looks much tougher what i would say is I don't actually think the way a lot of French races are run suit this horse, so I don't think we've necessarily seen him to best effect so far this season. He was beaten last time out. I think it was at saint Cloud, unless he's run again since. Uh, and a sprint doesn't suit him. He's a strong stayer, uh, so that often change in pace you see in French racing. the, the race, uh, race like the Ark, often you get a strong pace. You, you didn't last year, which is what he needed uh but yeah i ultimately i think this year's is stronger although i certainly wouldn't be surprised to see him run another bold race because ultimately i think he's a very good stayer over a mile and a half he loves a bit of soft ground which often you can get a long shot in october and as you say he's been there and done it so he's proven in the conditions so i wouldn't put it past him but i think he's definitely got a tougher task this time around
1: Sam, we know who your arc selection is because I don't know whether or not it will definitely make it to the to the day, but you can't not bet on Pile Driver, who you have <gasps> on off love affair talking. with.
2: Yeah. Pile Driver is my on off love. Um don't don't back or get cautious, hoses up. Do back it. It then does its two furl on out drift, and it's 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 definitely a love affair. I will definitely be piling on pile driver twenty five to one. But actually, it's always interesting with the arc running because you always think that there's so many of them with the capacity to run against each other. Just that one more time, whether it's like at the Ebor or whether the Ledger is always a good one, and then you've got the international remnants going for it as well. But. So it would be interesting in the ledger to see if like Adea and Hurricane Lane run against each other perhaps. But for me, it's Adea. I don't think Adea has done anything wrong. It was a good Derby win. It was a good um, King George. I, I just think it's going from strength to strength. It'll be interesting to see where they run it again and how they run it again in terms of whether it's going to be going full pelt, whether the arc is just a, after Gaius lost, for example, suddenly the arc was just, okay, we're not going to do it but um, it'll be interesting to see what they do with it beforehand.
3: But at the moment- the, Sorry, go on.
2: No, I was just going to say for me at the moment, it's Adéa at the moment.
3: Makes a lot of sense. From, from what I can gather, from what I've heard, I've been told the, pian, the plan with Adéa is the pre-Niel, uh, to give him some experience of traveling before the Ark. Hurricane Lane is going to go for the St. Ledger and then to the Ark, as far as I'm aware. So perhaps hold off if you're thinking of backing R for the St Ledger. Uh, It's interesting as well next year, which will stay in training, um, a bloodstock, uh, a colleague who works in bloodstock of mine, Kitty Trice, indicated that Hurricane Lane has got much more of a stout pedigree. It's not as much of a commercial pedigree. I think it's down one over two miles So potentially we could see him next year, whereas Adyar as a Derby winner, as a King George winner, he's got that sexy sort of profile that breeders would be after. So, but who knows, you know, maybe they could run Adyar in the St. Ledger. Maybe they could change their minds. Maybe they'll both stay in training. Godolphin in the last couple of years have been very sporting with where they've chosen to run their horses. Hence why seemingly the plan is to run both Hurricane Lane and Adyar in the arc. So it's going to be so exciting.
2: I will hold off. <laughs> Although I guess,
1: what I guess by that logic, uh, Hurricane Lane is currently sort of five to four for the St. Ledger. So if that's correct, then there could be value in it. Not that there's tremendous value in all ways five to four in the, in the St. Ledger, but still. I've
3: got a dark one for the St. Ledger. I tipped a horse up last week uh, and thankfully he didn't embarrass me and he went and won at Glorious Goodwood. So that was good. I've got my eye on Ottoman Emperor. He he. I don't think at the moment he's good enough to beat Hurricane Lane but now I've got the fancy price. I'm hoping he doesn't let me down.
1: All right, and Frank can't can't let you escape with.
0: I thought Sam was going to take mine, and we were going to both be on the same horse again. But I'm going to go against Sam and go Hurricane Lane. I think the fact that it went to Longchamp and won convincingly on soft ground, um, it's you know, so it has that experience of being there and traveling and kind of the different condition. So going back to the Derby as well, you know, the whole, it lost two shoes and still had a pretty good effort in that. And then since then, both its wins were super convincing. So I've
3: got to pull you up there. We don't, we don't like this. It of horses. He is a he, he is a he, He, sorry,
0: (laughs) but yes, I'm, I'm going to go hurricane lane. I think he will win the arc.
3: Much better.
1: Sadly, Frank. I mean, I'd already made the Hurricane Lane case a few weeks ago, but I'm I'm in the same camp as you, which means Hurricane Lane stands absolutely no chance because we have never agreed on a horse race and then had a winner. So In about four years, yeah, we can. Hey, he's he's
3: proof isn't he? I think he's a steadfast contender. Hurricane Lane, he's he's just looks solid and looks a real beast. So it's going to be it's going to be thrilling to see how he matches up against uh, Adyar. Anyway,
1: yeah, in in potentially the best arc ever. So uh, we've got that (laughs) to look forward to. And I know you've been very generous with your time, and we don't want to hold on to you for too long so i guess it's a natural ending point and then maybe we can have you back on in the future to discuss the arc once only one or two of the horses we've mentioned have turned up and a complete outsider <laughs> is one <So.
3: laughs> absolutely no uh no worries i'm happy to happy to sit and chat um you know i spend all my day talking about horse racing but i could do it for even longer if it's possible <laughs>
1: Yeah. And well, thank you. And before you go, I guess a chance to sort of put in some plugs, obviously people can find you on the racing post to see, see your writing. They can find you on the racing post podcast, which you're on the Monday episodes, I believe.
3: I am. Yeah. Sometimes yes, Sometimes I help out on the Friday show, but primarily it's the Monday one for me. Indeed.
0: Okay. I, and I then- have to say being, being on a podcast now, I really respect that you, do such a good job of not kind of cutting off the guests and arguing against some of their opinions because when we have bold opinions there is no holding back on the arguments but you know for someone who obviously knows a lot about horse racing I'm sure there are times you hear a pundit give you know a selection that you really disagree with or something that a suggestion you really don't like but it's it's all you know all positive on the on the podcast which is which is very tough to do being on a podcast I know
3: (laughs) well thank you I mean it's interesting we haven't touched upon that because going back to my background I don't have any media training I didn't study media at all as I say I've never been one to have a lot of confidence so it's funny now that I have this role as a presenter because ultimately just one day, uh, Bruce Millington, who former editor of the Racing Post, stuck me in front of a camera and sort of said, right, talk about this jockey. Uh, and then it's all come from there. So I've been very fortunate really to uh, been given this opportunity. And when I started presenting, uh, it was terrible. Absolutely terrible. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I like to think I've got a bit better, but there's still there's still more I can do. Uh, but it's interesting because it it doesn't come naturally to some people and I never thought it would be where I end up but it's always interesting at race and that's the great thing you get so many different views and you respect so many different people and what they have to say Uh, you know a podcast is a great vehicle for that
0: absolutely yeah it's 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 really nice the the Monday wrap-up because being in America it's tough to watch a lot of the races because they're gone so early. So it's nice if I've missed a few, you know, I can get some good feedback from what looked good and, you know, what to bet on in the future. So it's great.
3: Very, very kind. Thanks a lot.
1: And then a final opportunity, I guess, where can people find you on social media? if they want to see your non-official thoughts, I guess.
3: <laughs> my thoughts about absolute nonsense, uh, probably food, thistlecrack, my dog, and uh, other racing shenanigans. Uh, I'm just at, at MP underscore horse racing on Twitter. So that's where to find me anyway.
1: Perfect. Well, Maddie, thank you. Thank you very much for taking the time to speak to us.
3: Thank you so much for having me.